0: And I was like, oh, right, we talked to you about sex, but we left out of that conversation, 99.99% of the sex people have, which is for pleasure, not for making babies. Even people who want babies only make one or two or three, or if they're Irish overachievers, um, like the Brady's (laughs) at the end of our block at St. Ignatius, um, 13, uh, you have a lot more sex than you do kids. So what's sex for? Is it for kids or is it for something else primarily? It's for something else, it's for pleasure, it's to cement the partner bond, it's for release, it's for that human need for intimacy and touch. That's what sex is about and for. And those are the conversations we had with our son. What sex is really for is pleasure. And that's what's usually left out of sex education. Most sex education is reproductive biology, how to make a baby, which isn't that difficult to do. Uh, Sometimes it's harder to avoid than it is to do. What's hard is talking to people about what you want, figuring out what it is that you want, and having those conversations with people really means showing them who you are. And who you are is not always who you're supposed to be, and that's hard, and that's scary. And that's what a sex education should cover.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast with David and Stephen Flynn.
0: That
2: voice with the wonderful Sarah Fawcett, and welcome to the Happy Pair Show.
1: Woo! I see we all have podcast voice on now. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: funny. I call it a show rather than a podcast. <laughs> I, I, I think I, show sounds cool, though. Yeah, I like I, that, yeah. It feels more exciting, like there's going to be a bit more like whooping and Rasmatage. running around.
1: A and bit then- more like circus. And uh, just for people to know, who, who am I? Who's oh, Sarah? Oh, you're Sarah. Yeah, you're yeah. Sarah
2: Fawcett. Sarah's the third twin, in case you're wondering. Sarah produces this show. Al- oh, I said show
1: again. I know. Sarah
2: produces it with the wonderful Sean.
1: I like to refer to myself as uh, the paid friend. I just kind of follow the lads around. And, uh- <laughs> I think that sounds
0: crap. <laughs> I, don't like
2: that. I don't like that one. Uh, we're sitting here eating chocolate. Stephen bought a really nice fancy bar of chocolate. It's 80%. It's Stephen claims that it's all for research for his bean-to-bar chocolate making, but really, yeah, we're just sitting here great eating fancy, with. overpriced chocolate, drinking mushroom tea. I don't think tea. it's overpriced. I think it's bar- a bargain. Yeah. Well, well that's what are multiple
1: things that you guys have going on at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amongst this, what what else were we doing today? We've today, been talking happy mind skills. We've been went for
2: walks. I went for two walks. I'm gonna buy a new jacket. It's freezing. I love the randomness of life at the moment. Like I was there this morning. Um, Justine had to go off to, that's my wife, had to go off to get an MRI today. She's all good, please God. But um, I got a, a call. There's two Italian lads here from Bord Fulcher. I think you're meant to be meeting them. And I was like, okay, Ned, quick, we got to go to the beach. And you run over and we meet this fella, Francesco and Marcello. Go, Marcello, what a beautiful name. Uh, and they were like YouTubers and Bord Fulcher was bringing them over. And we got to get on the beach and swim and, you know, have just random little chats. And then it's over five minutes later. And it was like. Did that happened, or was that? But like you
1: constantly or... get people showing up at the beach. Remember at that time, uh, Cotton just came along with the book, and I remember I saw you later that day, and you're like, This man just showed up at the book, and he uh, on the beach, and he had this book, this book of loads of Irish proverbs. It was amazing. We just started talking that in was Irish. Wiley, wasn't it? Yeah, oh,
2: Leemar shit, it was Man but, but it was good. Don't <laughs> let the truth get in the way of good story. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks,
2: Dave. Uh, leaves a musician, he showed up to the beach one morning, and then we were just there, and I remember just. I don't know, he just came over, or we kind of encouraged him over to chat because he seemed just so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gave you a book on kind of. Okay. Okay. Question for you, Steve. So what's going on? What are thoughts or what are ponderings? What are things in your head now that's exciting you or not exciting you? Um, This week. This week. Okay. Ponderings that are exciting. I miss so many. <laughs> no, okay. Right building now, a treehouse. Yeah, I'm building a treehouse with the kids. And I think it's a project to, you know, I only started building when I was maybe, maybe like. Five years ago. Building. I got a saw. Building sounds <laughs> like <laughs> <playing> <laughs> with wood. <laughs> yeah. Okay, <that's> building. It's right. <laughs> cheap to build. I did you were building. Okay, I was so always afraid of a skill. So I always had the idea that I was going to cut my hand off. But then I got one. And oh my God, the joy of it. And I, I, I kind of wanted to like my, my daughter, May, now she's 11. We built a tree house this summer and it was such a project together to work out. How do we build it? We didn't even plan it. We just kind of worked it out. Dennis kind it of. It definitely looks like you didn't plan it. Hey, it's oh. pretty cool. It's insulated. It works. It's deadly. She's really proud and it like. I, I, the goal of the project is one that I learned how to build, but then we the kids like at their young age can learn how they can build stuff and make stuff and kind of bring things into reality. And I think it's such a fun project. I
1: think my favorite thing, though, is that uh, when I asked Theo, your son, who's the uh, current treehouse is for, um, how he was enjoying it. And he's like, yeah, I'm not that interested. I think daddy prefers it more. <laughs> <laughs> so is it for the kids or is it for you, no, Steve? No, it's very much Steve <laughs> Salas.
2: I think it's Stephen Salas out there tinkering away. No. <laughs> with his wood and it was fun on Sunday I showed up Dennis uh, Dennis left his chop saw in out in the shed out in my house and I had great fun showing up at Steve's house with the chop saw feeling real man Steve you're doing crap with your skill saw so look what I got boom and I took out this chop saw and, and then, you did bring that energy of like come here and I'll show you come how here to do it. son and I'll show you how to chop wood and we were chopping wood and playing with it anyway foot. we're talking all about a tree house here
1: so uh, guys, um, maybe we should round it up and oh, bring yeah. it to this week's podcast. Okay, is- so
2: thank you for indulging us in that conversation. This week is honestly, it's with an absolute legend. Dan Savage, he's been coined the world's most influential sex columnist by, by The Guardian. The Guardian yeah. um, he's a sex advice columnist, a podcaster, an author. He's appeared on numerous television shows. He's got Savage Love, which is his sex advice column. He's got his podcast called um, One of the World's Most Listened to Podcast. He's, he's a remarkable man that brings not only huge amount of years of experience to the kind of sex education, sex discussion topic, but he brings a sense of spirituality. And that was what I was most, not surprised, but most delighted to discuss. There's a softness, there's a tenderness, there's a gentleness, there's like a empathy. wisdom, a wisdom that I seldom get to be around.
1: Dave likes to listen to him in the bath. Yeah, uh, well, (laughs) I I, I have
2: listened to him in the bath. I wouldn't say I do regularly, but uh, just nuggets of human advice that I think are, I guess, having done it for so long, 25 or 30 years, he's got such a humanness and it's so relatable and so accepting, which I think is so important. And his message, I got so many nuggets here, whether it was to kind of you know, just accept, you know, about my own relationship and also with my kids and kind of how to, you know, help them on their own journey into a more positive, sexual, sexually active, you know, adulthood, hopefully. Yeah, but a brilliant conversation. Amazing, man. I enjoyed it immensely. And I was so grateful for the time to chat to him. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado. Dan Savage. Dan Savage. Dan Savage yeah really enjoy it <laughs> and, and if you want to share it on Instagram stories we'll reshare it too because uh, I really want to get people to listen to this one because he's just such a legend what a glorious human anyway I'm not going to shut up waffling we give you the wonderful Dan Savage Dan Savage Dan Savage
0: Dan <laughs> Savage. Uh, Terry's my husband I oh, also have oh. a boyfriend as Terry does I'm Terry's husband he also has a boyfriend um, and I spent half the year with my husband and half the year with my boyfriend wow. like a timeshare like a Jeez, dog. That but,
2: is amazing.
0: It's a very Jeez. complicated
2: life. Well, it sounds it, like I was asking Steve uh, when we were walking up here, like, oh, what's like, how, how do you not let complacency come into a marriage or a long term relationship? And I guess what you are saying is the very, you know, the answers to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're never bored. Terry and I always have a lot to talk about, even almost 30 years into our marriage. Um, So Wow. It's not always easy, but we're never bored. Most couples, you know, Terry and I are like together 30 years. We have an adult son. Most couples in our position are just kind of looking at each other, waiting for one person to die. And we have so much to talk about all the time wow wow.
2: geez so interesting that's brilliant um well it's as we were saying it's an absolute honor to have you it really is we've been doing this full series on sex and relationships and you were our dream guest right from the start like we've had and we've had so much like the full learnings across like obviously you've been dealing with this for 25 30 years so you're like knee deep in it every day of the week but for us it's just such a glorious topic dealing with Everyone's insecurities and vulnerabilities and tenderness—like sex—is the arena of where so much of the the human emotion
0: is. And the sex is the reason we're humans. Sex is the reason we exist. We are the products of natural selection, spontaneous mutation. Sex is a half a billion years old, uh, or sorry, five hundred million years old. We are three hundred thousand years old, tops. Sex built us, and it's building whatever comes after us.
2: Wow. Yeah. When you say it like that, it really gives it that sense of just grandiosity.
0: It is grand. And what always sort of flabbergasts me about humans is that we pretend that we're in charge of sex. The lie we're told when we're kids is that one day we will grow up and have sex. Uh, The reality is one day we grow up and sex has us.
2: Yeah. As in that we are, we just have to, it's a natural instinct and we aren't in charge of it in any sense.
0: And we negotiate with it from a position of weakness uh, and it's dominant. We have to figure out how to channel it, but to pretend that we can control it, that we can dam it up, that we can pretend to be who sexually we're not, sets people up for failure and misery We have to encourage people to be who they are and be out and at least, you know, even if they don't want to share with the whole world who they are sexually, accept themselves sexually and figure out then how to channel it in their lives so that this powerful thing doesn't become a powerfully destructive thing, which it can when we're paralyzed by shame or denial or lies. Wow.
2: Yeah, like you've been doing this for 30 years, Dan, like a long time. Do you still feel as excited about it or do you still feel as like passionate about it? Because like I know like you've got a wonderful story of how you kind of stumbled into it. And here you are 30 years later still doing it. And I wonder, does it still intrigue you or like, is it the same questions that tend to repeat over and over again?
0: Well, you get a lot of the same questions. I'm constantly hearing from people who are now, you know, 18 or 19 who 10 years ago were eight or nine and so weren't really thinking about sex, weren't sexually active yet, weren't making the mistakes, or having to wrestle with the fears that we all have to wrestle with as we become sexually active or begin to date people. And I sometimes have to remind myself of that, that I feel like I'm repeating myself because I said this 15 years ago or a dozen years ago, but I'm saying it to people who haven't heard it yet, who haven't gone out in search of this information yet because they weren't yet sexually sexually online, really, sexually active. Uh, But a lot of things have changed over the years. I'm really pleased and proud to say that one of the questions I used to get constantly, I now get very rarely. And that question was 30 years ago, am I normal? I got that question all the time, every day in the mail, someone would like write a long question. And then at the end, am I normal? And I think people over the last 30 years have begun to understand that when it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm. So however, however more unique, you know, uniquer, I'm not sure that's a word. However, you know, as you, the more unique you are, the, the more normal you are in a kind of paradoxical way, that your difference is what makes you human, what makes you a normal human, different from other humans sexually and in all other ways. But when it comes to human sexuality, variance is normal. So I don't get and people get that now. And I didn't, I don't think people used to get that. And so I used to get that question Am I normal every day? People had that anxiety. Am I normal? Am I normal? Am I normal? They wanted to be reassured that they were normal. And for the first 10 years, I feel like in my column every week, I would say, no, you're not normal. And so what? And I don't have to say that anymore.
2: That's wow. encouraging to hear. What's the human fascination with wanting to be normal? I think it's just we want to be accepted and belonging and that's find our place within something. And to be normal, we feel like we're more likely in the middle to find. And maybe, maybe part of the reason why that question hasn't come up for the last 10 years is because with the Internet, it's become there's so many niches of niches of niches. And within that, people are realizing that diversity and there's so much variety and yeah, variance.
0: Yeah variance is the norm when it comes to human sexuality. And we we used to have it really in some places beaten into us that conformity was the expectation. And if conforming didn't come easily to you, and perhaps it does come easily to some, some people are heterosexual and I love and support heterosexual people. Some people are want monogamy and some people want marriage and a lifetime commitment. And all of those things are quote unquote normal. But when you think about sex on any given night, the majority of the sex happening all over the world is not necessarily monogamous, not necessarily heterosexual, not necessarily procreative, not necessarily within the bounds of matrimony. So what's normal is what we've been told is not normal. And what's normal or expected of us is actually abnormal to the point of near freakishness.
2: Wow. <laughs> when you say it like that, it's like, wow. Wow. <laughs> one thing I'd love to, like, it, it totally makes me go, wow, that's, you know, not what I would have necessarily have thought of. One topic I'd love to just start off with, I think, is that kind of section of the one, you know, Hollywood has fed us this dream. I remember myself and Dave were identical twins. And when we were 16, um, we went to all boys school and played a lot of rugby. But we used to like, when we wouldn't go out, we'd sit in the couch and we'd watch romantic dramas. And in the morning, if it was a particularly good one, we'd wake up, we'd watch it again, Dave. yeah. yeah. Let's watch it again. And we loved it. I love this idea of the one. And I can't wait oh to God, meet her and God, find her. Oh my her. God. And we were really fed this dream. And I'd love, uh, I, I imagine, you know, modern day society is all, you know, kind of set, tends to romanticize perfection. We live in a society where, you know, the veneer is pretty high and it's pretty out there. I wonder if you could talk about the sense of the one in relation. Or soulmate or this type of concept.
0: It's a lovely idea, And I think it's a hyperbolic compliment that you pay someone, you call them the one, you treat them like they're the one, and in the naming them the one and treating them like the one, they can become the one for you, but there is no the one. There's maybe a 0.67, a 0.74, and it's your job to round that motherfucker up to the one, but that's an act of will. And, And you do that, you know, you love and accept someone for their faults. You love and accept someone, even though they're not everything that you might want or need in one human being. And you have to accept that they're doing the same for you. They're rounding you up too. And there's beauty in that. And there's something lovely about that. The one is a person that you create Just like, you know, a couple, a marriage, a relationship is a myth often that two people create together. It's a story they tell each other about each other and about what they mean to each other. And sometimes that story has to be revised, but it is a story. And the one is a, I don't want to call it a lie. It's a compliment. It's an exaggeration. It's it's a rounding up process. And I see it also as a damaging myth. If you don't understand it as a compliment, if you don't understand it as hyperbole, uh, you know, you're the only one I ever wanted, I only have eyes for you. All these things we say to our lovers that our lovers know isn't true, uh, you know, that they're not true. But we say them, and it's the saying them and the desire to say them where the meaning lies and the truth of the lie lives, right? But where I see the one as potentially damaging is I hear all the time from inexperienced people or naive people or people who don't get that it's a compliment you're paying someone to call them the one, who think, okay, I'm in this great relationship, I really love this person, we get along great in all these sorts of ways, but I have this doubt in the back of my head that they're not the one. That somewhere out there in the world in this jumble of seven or eight billion people, the one is out there and I have to go find that person. When in reality, there's many hundreds of millions of potential the ones. Out there for you. And if you can see it for that, then you're not going to be hunting for perfection. There is no perfect fit. There is no person out there that you're never going to fight with. There's no person out there you're not going to have conflict with. There's no person out there who's going to meet all of your needs and you're going to have a seamless, frictionless relationship with. It's going to be messy and complicated, and the contingencies will have to be made, and compromises will have to be made, and you'll have to accept some things that maybe you know, you didn't want to accept. I, l- I always like to say there's no settling down without some settling for. And people who believe in the one believe they should never have to settle for anything. And that ends a lot of relationships that shouldn't end. People wind up breaking up with people because they're not the one and then realizing a decade later, they were close enough. Closer than anybody else has come since. Boom.
2: I love it. It's very Boom. empowering. Like what you're saying is a lot more empowering in this sense, the pressure of finding... Well, it's a lot more real, a lot more real on a date, you know, and, and human and relatable rather than this idea of some mythical creature appearing,
0: walking into your living room one day and going, hello. I know it's not even telling people to go find a needle in a haystack. It's telling people to go find a needle in a needle stack. That <laughs> somewhere in this mix of 8 billion people, there's one person, good luck. And no, somewhere out there, there's tens of millions of potential or hundreds of millions of potential people who could be wonderful partners for you and that you could be a wonderful partner for, that's a lot less existentially depressing or distressing to hear than there's one person, good luck, go find them. There's lots of potential partners out there for you. Enjoy. It's a better message.
2: message. Yeah, it's a beautiful message. It's really, really, I really, really like it. I really, really like it. Uh, like, and on that topic, I remember, I remember back like years ago, um, being in the pub with, with mom and dad and some of their friends. And I remember some of the friends we were having a conversation with, they were, they were married for a long time. And I remember kind of saying to mom and dad's friends, like, like, what's the secret to a long, happy, healthy marriage? And they said, number one, communication, and number two, a good, healthy sex life. And it was like, oh, great. And this is back in Catholic (laughs) Ireland. I remember being 18, go, good, healthy sex life. Oh, my goodness. Like, you know, and, and, and that was the thing. And I guess, as you said, number one in a healthy relationship is not expecting the other person to be your everything. We're all rounding one another up. And like, I'm sure there's been other... There's been so many nuggets over the years of just recurring themes, recurring themes of themes of themes. And it all comes back to the foundational message of relationships. And what are some of the gold nuggets? Like, Because your experience, you've lived the lives of many people in terms of this (laughs)
0: niche. Well, I, I think good communication is really important. I think a good sex life is really important if sex is important to both partners. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of couples out there where the relationship is companionate loving, intimate, even romantic, but there's no sex or sex has fallen away. And we don't want to tell those people if they're happy and content in that relationship, that the relationship is damaged or broken or deficient. It's There's a problem if there's a problem. If nobody's unhappy, there's no problem. I know a lot of people in companionate relationships who are very happy, not asexual necessarily, not a romantic companionate, And so like, yeah, I think I need a healthy sex life in my relationship to be happy, but we shouldn't project that on to everyone. The other truth, I think that is really definition, you know, people, I've been with my husband for 30 years. People say like, how do you make it work? And we sometimes look at each other and say, not good communication, not an active sex life. Although we do communicate, we have an active sex life. We sometimes just look at each other and laugh and say, we just keep not getting divorced. Like we have serious conflicts and big fights that, you know, sometimes I look at my friends who, you know, can't keep a man and who complain to me and they break up with people for shit that Terry and I like regard as a Tuesday. Like, ah, yeah, we had like a big fight on Tuesday, but now it's Thursday and we're totally getting along. And so I think being able to let go and forget is an important skill. And there's something I always call the price of admission, You have to identify those things about your partner that you can't change, that you may not like, uh, but you're willing to accept. You know, if you want monogamy and your partner can't be monogamous and is going to cheat on you, okay, that may be a price of admission that you can't pay. That's too steep a price for most people who want monogamy to pay. But, you know, the example for my lives I use is my husband's kind of a slob and I clean up after him. And I used to yell at him about picking things up and putting things away. And then one day I just kind of followed around putting things away and picking up. And I was like, you know what? This is a price of admission I'm willing to pay to be with him. I will pick up after him. There's less conflict. You know, it takes less energy for me to put things away than to yell at him to go put the things away he didn't put away. And it's worth it. And if you can identify those things that, you know, you may never be happy with, but you're just not going to fight about anymore. And then you step around them. I think that's really key. Because you think of the couples you may know personally, where they're like, they're bickering all the time, or there's constant conflicts, and they're always in conflict over the same fucking bullshit.
2: And you just want (laughs) to say to them, like,
0: this is never going to change about your husband. This is never going to change about your wife. If you can't stand this, end it. But if you are going to stay, for God's sake, stop complaining about it. Because you know it is just a part of it. And you should be able to do that to, to, to stay in a relationship so sometimes you know it's good to communicate but sometimes it's good to shut the fuck up. And stop complaining about the stuff that you cannot change. That's
2: such practical advice. I remember there was there was a joke or one of the memes going around where it was a man. He kind of kept having these fights with his wife. You know, it was, a, it was a little meme going around. And he went to the doctor and the doctor kind of said, well, okay, next time you f- you're in a fight, just I want you to gargle water in your mouth for five minutes. And so next time they're in a fight, he takes a mouthful of water and he starts gargling. And, you know, whatever, the fight happens. And he goes back anyway, a couple of weeks later to the doctor. And the doctor says, uh, so how did, how did my trick go? How did it work? And he goes, I can't believe it. Like, it just works incredibly. And what, what's the trick with the water? Like, does it do something with my throat or whatever? And the doctor goes, well, it just means you just shut up and listen. <laughs> uh, and it's like, it's the basic, simple little things. That's, that's
0: really. Listening's half of communication. Sometimes people think communication means talking. Rejecting, yeah. Often communication requires somebody to shut the fuck up gargle and listen
2: yeah but i love that sense the the price of admission because it's something that again it's much more forgiving there's a more softer aspect in this kind of paradigm that we've been sold that kind of you know the one it's going to be frictionless it's going to be perfect it's going to be romantically so engaging oh i can't wait the reality is you're going to live with someone and if you're going to have a family my god it's messy and like, I know with myself, often I can be the one giving out to my wife, "Will you put your things away, Will you? and I'm fed up. But when you say it like that, it's like, the price of admission, perfect. And is I'm it, happy tidying up. I'm going to stop nagging her.
0: You pay the price of it. It's just like a roller coaster. Like, if it costs five bucks to ride the roller coaster, and you want to pay the five bucks, and then you get on the roller coaster, if you complain the entire time on that ride about how much it cost, Why? Like if you decide you're going to pay the five bucks to ride the roller coaster, shut up, enjoy the ride, stop complaining about how much it costs. So that's the price of admission. You like pay the price and enjoy the ride. If you can't pay that price, get off the ride. Don't ride the roller coaster. And there's just so many ways, you know, that I've decided, you know, for Terry, I'll pay this price of admission and he's decided for me, he'll pay that price of admission. But really, and I can't, I've already emphasized this, but I want to emphasize it again, the key is not just identifying, you know, the things that you have to put up with, pay the price of admission, but then shut up. Shut up about it. I don't nag Terry about cleaning up after him because that's the price of admission I've paid. That's Man, lovely. That's wisdom it. right there. It's really good. I, I want to back up for a second to when you guys said you were young and twin brothers and watching romantic comedies together because i have brothers maybe it's a twin thing like they were just beating the crap out of me we were watching rom-coms on the couch no we we did we were amazing
2: at that we excelled at that but there was the other softer spot like like, you know where we'd sit and we'd watch these we'd have a choice of any movie we could have watched rambo or we could have watched some die hard Two, riddled with testosterone but we loved like serendipity or like dave we (laughs) watched the notebook you're not meant to be telling (laughs) people like this is a podcast
0: (laughs) But I don't know. I think in, actually, in, in fairness to my older brothers they could be nice to me too they let me <laughs> they let me borrow their uh, porn magazines in the 70s and 80s and read. I, <laughs> I read them for the articles they were looking of at the pictures course. And I was reading the stories. <laughs>
2: they let me their porn mags sorry to break the flow on the podcast but time to keep the lights on and okay. also tell you about an amazing project Amazing project called Wolfgang Reforestation. Okay, so we have a dear friend with us, Alan Coleman, and he's been running a company called Wolfgang Digital for years, and he's just started an amazing project called Wolfgang Reforestation. And it's really all about, like, you know, as you know, we're all about green. We're all about the planet. We're all about the environment, as is our dear friend Al. And Al, they've bought 51 acres down in West Wicklow. They're reforesting it because Ireland was, at one stage, about 80% forest. Now it's about 3% forest and woodland. And as you know, as the planet warms up, we need more trees. We need more forestation. We need more biodiversity. So... The call to action here is Al's and Wolfgang Reforestation are planting trees. This Christmas, if you want to go green, you can give the gift of a tree. It's 20 euro instead of giving possessions that people probably don't need. Uh, It only takes three minutes to give the gift of a tree. You can find details on wolfgangreforest.ie. So that's Wolfgang, W-O-L-F-G-A-N-G-R-E-F-O-R-E-S-T dot I-E. And really, they're raising money so that they can reforest this 51 acres, which they bought, which will be a 30% increase in the forest footprint. So there you go. 20 euro, you can buy a tree and give it this Christmas. Great. Uh, great. Damn, one thing I'd love to, you coined the phrase monogamish. And I think it's very relevant because, again, leading on from that sense of perfection and perfection society. I wonder if you could talk about this, because I think it's very, again, in that kind of vein of forgiving, there's a sense acceptance. of accepting. there's a lot more fluidness of it.
0: Monogamy is the only thing humans attempt where perfection is the only standard for success. Monogamy is the only thing where we tell people, if you can't do this thing flawlessly for 60 years, you were no good at it at all. And then we wonder why monogamous relationships are so fragile often. We tell people that an infidelity is unforgivable, that if somebody cheats, it means they don't love you and never did love you. And the relationship was a lie. We're setting people who want to be monogamous up for failure. What we should be telling people that it is that if someone is with you for 60 years and they only cheated on you once or twice, they were pretty good at monogamy and they probably loved you rather than saying to people that they were terrible at it and they never loved you and the marriage or the relationship was a lie. you know infidelity happens and that's where really monogamous comes in as a concept for me that monogamous is perfection and monogamous is like human
2: a plus or a or B plus
0: yeah and it's a term I coined to describe my relationship with my husband many years ago because we were not monogamous you were monogamous for four years and then we were not monogamous and I had written something about us being monogamous and then we weren't anymore and I had to kind of come out about it because I didn't want people to find out we were not monogamous and then claim we had been lying the whole time we'd been together. And this was at the height of the marriage equality debate in the United States. And we were kind of a prominent gay couple and parents. And so, you know, when we came out as non-monogamous, people began to assume we were having like a million sex partners. And we were much more monogamous than not at the time. And so monogamish, like we were mostly monogamous. And I think that's what a lot of couples are, if not always physically in practice, at least inside That even if you are physically monogamous, to describe yourself as monogamish allows for desire for others, attraction to others. We all know that we're attracted to people other than our partners, and yet many of us freak out when we see any evidence that our partners are attracted to anyone but us. Which is a little crazy and creates conflict in relationships where conflict doesn't necessarily need to exist. Think of all the letters I get, the calls I get from people are wasting time and having fights policing their partners about something they should just accept as true yeah your partner is sometimes attracted to other people just as you are sometimes attracted to other people that doesn't mean they're going to act on it it's not a betrayal to be attracted to other people they can make a monogamous commitment and honor it but have a monogamous heart as we all do people shouldn't be inconsiderate it doesn't mean you should ogle the waiter or you know flirt with somebody in front of your partner in a cruel way but the amount of energy and time people waste scrutinizing their partner for evidence of what is just hardwired into the human condition we are not a naturally monogamous species we pair bond i think that's real the science is there that that's real but we're not monogamous what does pair bond mean
2: pa- pair bond like is that like the way the like swans
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So all these bird species that were held up as examples for humans, like, oh, look at these birds, they could be monogamous, why can't we, even though we're, you know, we're monkeys and apes, why can't we be monogamous like these birds? Well, then along comes genetic testing, and we find out that all these birds, although they pair bond, are madly cheating on each other, slipping away from the nest and mating with other partners, but then returning to the nest and the couple to, you know, raise the you know, hatch the eggs that were that were fertilized by some other bird. So all these birds that were held up to us as examples of like monogamy and how monogamy should be easy, we now know weren't strictly monogamous. They were socially monogamous, as many humans are. You know, they presented as a monogamous couple, but sexually not necessarily. Social monogamy and sexual monogamy are two different things.
2: Okay, can I go? Okay. I had two things. Because I I like I remember reading a statistics where it's something like 50% of males cheat in relationships and 50% of women at the moment. That like, you know, the statistically, you know, there's a high probability that in a long-term relationship someone's gonna have a mistake.
0: Because at some that point. 50% isn't married to that 50%. Exactly.
2: Exactly. They're jumbled together. Yeah. And I guess
0: my my point there is
2: when you were when you were saying about that, I was wondering like, what makes us conditioned like this? How do we go into relationships with this uh, idea that Uh, uh, once I meet the one, once I get, once I'm in a committed relationship that I'm never going to be attracted to other people. And that that you become surprised when they are attracted or when, and, and there's all these patterns happen. Like what are we, like what, what stories are we telling ourselves that aren't true?
0: We wouldn't even need the concept of monogamy if it was true that when you were in love with someone, you wouldn't be attracted to anybody else. We wouldn't have to make monogamous commitments consciously. They would be made for us unconsciously. We wouldn't have the concept. There wouldn't be a word for it. That we have a word for it is proof that just being in love with someone doesn't make you default to monogamy. Yeah. And why
2: did it develop as a concept? Is this more because society well, runs better uh, with religion? Is this religion largely based? Or is it...
0: A lot of people theorize that it has something to do with religion, the emergence of agriculture, uh, the emergence of, of property, even capitalism that when there was something to pass on to your children it mattered very much knowing which children were your children and at that point women had to be locked up uh, and you know this patriarchal culture emerged which was all about assuring men who could never know for sure if the kids were their kids that the kids were their kids wow that's fair enough so monogamy and marriage have you know doesn't mean they can't be repurposed or reunderstood now Um, or refashioned in our more egalitarian society, but they have a very dark history wrapped up with misogyny, um, treating women as property and children as property, uh, which yet, even as I say that as a non-monogamous person, there's a lot of benefits to monogamy. Paternal security, I think, is one of the benefits. Um, People who are in relationships that they hope are monogamous feel safer from sexually transmitted infections they feel reassured around emotional fidelity or less likely to be left for someone else if their partner's been sleeping with other people too. There are benefits to monogamy that are completely rational. Um, there are benefits to non-monogamy. Sometimes non-monogamy stabilizes a relationship. We never talk about that. You know, we when two people are in a relationship and they open the relationship or they have a three-way and they wind up getting divorced or breaking up because of it, we all hear about that three-way when two people are in a relationship, and they have some sexual adventures together, and it strengthens their relationship, it revives their sex life, and they stay together, we never hear about those three ways. Because there's no scandal. And most people who have those kinds of three ways or sexual adventures, don't tell their friends, they certainly don't tell their kids. You only hear about your parents cheating when they got divorced because of it, for the most part. You hear about you know you don't hear about the three ways your parents had and you kind of don't want to hear about the three ways your parents had that made their relationship better that brought them closer together as three ways sometimes have the power to do
2: wow and that even leads me on to because we were chatting earlier and that like on your podcast your podcast is fascinating and you had a, a section on uh success stories which was like you know positive stories of people's sexual transformations or evolutions or whatnot And it didn't seem like your listeners enjoyed it as much as they enjoyed (laughs) the scandals or the insecurities or the those things. Like, it seems like the pain and vulnerabilities and insecurities seem to be more relatable than the I've transformed and now I'm owning my own sexuality stories.
0: Yeah, I started doing success stories at the beginning of the pandemic just to have something positive and also to, you know, reframe my sample a little bit you know, when all the questions are about the problems people are having with their sex lives, it can make it seem like sex itself is a problem because we don't share our success stories around sex, you know, on a sex advice podcast. People don't call me to say, hey, everything's great. I have no questions. Um, And so we invited those for a while, but then people kind of got tired of them and wanted, felt like they were a little bit crowding out the problems. And hearing about other people having problems can make you feel More comfortable with your own problems? It can make you feel empowered to ask questions and seek advice about your own problems. Sex, sex is powerful. Sex is scary. I remember being at this talk at a college once and a woman asked me, stood up, asked me a question. She was a virgin in her late teens or early twenties. All of her friends were already sexually active and she wanted to start having sex, but she was just so scared and she didn't know how to get over it. You know, how could she stop seeing sex as so scary. And my answer was not what she expected. My answer was sex is scary. And you should be afraid of sex. Sex can kill you. An unplanned pregnancy can upend your life. Intimate partner violence is something that you have to think about when you're getting to know someone and date them. You have to watch out for those red flags for intimate partner violence and get away from someone who's waving them in your face. We have to approach sex with some fear and trepidation because it can be so consequential. And so, yeah, I wanted some success stories. I wanted some success stories to balance out the fear that we all have of sex. And, but listeners, you know, wanted to get back to just all problems all the time. So that's what we've done.
2: (laughs) How did she respond to it? Was she, was she kind of. She
0: laughed. She laughed. You know, I'm gay and I've been sexually active for a very long time, uh, I have friends who, you know, a friend of mine was killed by Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal in Milwaukee who murdered 18 men and boys. Um, I had friends who died of HIV. Uh, I've had friends who were in relationships that were horrifying, that involved domestic violence. We all know people uh, where through no fault of their own, sex took them to a place where they were in danger, sometimes, you know, lives at risk lives lost and so we all have to bear that in mind as we approach sex what you want to do is mitigate the risks and to a point where you feel comfortable but at a certain point you got a bungee jump when it comes to sex at a certain point you've got to take the risk take the leap and most of us take those risks take those leaps and live and survive rarely does the bungee cord break mm.
2: and i've heard you talk about like you know there's you like being a homosexual man And the homosexual world, I've heard you reference like things that the gay, you know, that uh, heterosexual relations need to learn from gay land. And I've heard you reference it, this, that there's there's loads of learnings that, you know, maybe in male male, there's a different attitude to sex than, you know, in our
0: current culture where. Well, this just circles back to what you said at the beginning, communication. Nothing makes you better at sex than communication. Straight people often stop communicating about sex after they get to consent. Yes, we've established mutual attraction and desire. We are going to have sex now. And then straight people stop talking because it's going to be penis and vagina or PIV intercourse, as it's usually called in my business, PIV. (laughs) That's just assumed. That's a default. That's what straight sex is. When a man and a man go to bed together for the first time, they get to consent. You know, both guys are interested. They've mutually established desire. And then they begin to talk. That's the beginning of the conversation about sex, because what happens next can't be assumed. It has to be negotiated. That makes gay people better at sex than straight people. We're not communicating because we're more highly evolved or smarter or more thoughtful. We're communicating because we can't avoid it. We have to have a conversation because we don't default to PIV. We don't even default to PIB or penis and butt because there's two penises and two butts. So whose penis and whose butt requires a conversation if that's even going to happen. Um, you know, gay people, we took marriage from straight people, but we still let straight people get married because we're very generous that way. If there's anything that straight people could take from gay people, it's the four magic words that starts every same-sex encounter. The first time two guys are going to have sex, one of them looks at the other and says, what are you into? What do you want to do? What are you up for? And it's and I've been in play, case instances in my own life where we looked at each other, we're making out, we're gonna have sex, and we both at the exact same time said, what are you into together to each other? To be asked that question by a sex partner is just tremendously empowering. And it's an open-ended question. Like you can name anything at that moment. And gay people do feel empowered by that question. Imagine straight sex and how different it would be if when a man and a woman were about to go to bed together, somebody said, what are you into? And at that moment, both the man and the woman could rule anything in, anything out. Because you know what you often hear from a gay guy when you ask him, like, what are you into? You're about to have sex. What are you into? I'm not into anal. A lot of gay guys will say that 25% of gay guys never have anal sex. Even guys who have anal sex don't always have anal sex, might not always be up for it. And so they'll say, yeah, I'm not into anal, like oral, mutual masturbation, rolling around, some fantasy thing. Anything can be thrown out. Imagine a man's about to go to bed with a woman. He asks her, what are you into? And she says, eh, I'm not into vaginal. <laughs> His head would explode. It's like, didn't you just say you wanted to have sex? And like she could say then, yeah, I want to have oral sex. I want mutual masturbation. I want to roll around. I want to be intimate And, you know, have orgasms together and with each other for a little bit before we proceed to penetrative sex, which, you know, carries with it more, you know, physical risks, carries with it for some people more sort of emotional higher stakes. Imagine if that was something that straight people did with each other, then straight people's sex lives would be as good and as varied as gay people's sex lives are.
2: I, I'm even here, imagining it and going like I can't ever think of any encounter where that's where that I've asked that or that has been asked to me, and I kind of even the thought of it goes like, wow! I, I like I'd imagine I feel like I'm in a sweet shop, going, I love that chocolate bar and I love that <laughs> sweet bag of sweets, and like it really does conjure up that. How, that for, image. for anyone listening, how does one go to get the courage to do that? You know, say, say you've been in a re- relationship for a long period of time, and and your sex is kind of you do it in the dark, and it's quite just. You know, you go, through, you go through the the best of the 1990s hit and way on it goes again. <laughs> but uh, h- how does one go to have the courage to actually have that sense of conversation to go, listen, can we talk about our sex life? I'm really afraid. Like, how, do, how does, is there any tips you can give in relation to that?
0: If sex is important to both partners and both partners are still attracted to each other, you want, and you want to get back to how exciting it was at the start, It helps to, I think, read my books. It helps to remember that at the beginning of the relationship, you were the adventure they were on and they were the adventure you, you, sorry, you were the adventure they were on and they were the adventure you were on. They were new and sort of adventurousness and like risk and danger, a sense of vulnerability, the adrenaline pumping, all that was just built in. If you want to get that feeling back after 10 years, you have to engineer it. You have to go on an adventure together consciously. That can look like all sorts of different things. Uh, You know, for some couples, that could be a three-way. For other couples, that could be like, let's have sex in public. Let's have sex at work. Let's get out of our usual routines. Boredom is really fatal to a good sexual connection. For women in particular, boredom is really fatal to libido. A woman who is bored, like her libido will tank. I have so many friends who do research into anorgasmic women, women who can't climax, women who have no sexual desire, no libido at all, and they're in long-term committed relationships and it's a problem and the, like the relationships on the brink of disaster and divorce because she has no interest in sex and they can't of course conceive of opening the relationship so the husband could maybe get sex elsewhere and the couple ends up divorcing and then suddenly the woman is insanely horny again. Wow. because wow. she can have sex with somebody else. And so the problem boredom. was boredom with the, you know, with the partner, she was bored of her partner. Well, how do you control for that if you're not going to allow for different partners or other partners, you have to break things. You have to do different things together. You have to go on adventures together. My advice for couples is often to say, okay, we're, you know, acknowledge you're bored. they're bored. How do we shake things up? Okay. If you're always having sex at the same time, on the same day, in the same room, with the same person, on the same piece of furniture, well, there's five different things you can choose from to shake up. You can say to each other, we're going to have sex. We've been having sex once a week. We're going to have sex once this week, not in our house, not in our bed, with each other. But you surprise me this time. Next week, I'll surprise you. And then you're at work and your spouse, like, who never drops by your office, drops by your office because they're going to fuck you in their op- in your <laughs> office, right? You're going to have to find a bathroom with one stall or you're going to have to find a hallway or an empty conference room and take a risk. At the beginning of the relationship, you risked everything to get naked with this person. They could have been a serial killer, a crazy person, and you risked everything to get naked with them. Okay, you won't risk, like getting fired. You won't risk getting reprimanded for like getting caught in the bathroom with your spouse, having sex. Come on, risk something. And you won't be so bored. Boredom is the enemy. You know, people in open relationships, we, we've we fixed the boredom problem because we can seek sex outside our room from somebody other than our primary partner. People in closed relationships, you have to work together to fix the boredom problem. But you have to at least acknowledge it before you can address it and fix it.
2: And, and it seems by what you're saying, it has to be intentional. It can't just be like, you know, accidental. It needs to be kind of sat down. Well, because if it is an intentional it leads to infidelity.
0: Yes, possibly, yes. possibly, A lo- possibly. A lot of people cheat because they're bored. A lot of people cheat because they need that affirmation from outside. And. People who cheat aren't always like not in love with their partners anymore. It's not about the relationship. It's not a commentary, a meta commentary about the relationship. It's about themselves. It's about a need inside themselves for erotic affirmation, for attention being paid. And if you, you I don't think you can infidelity-proof relationships consciously, but if you want to lower the odds of being cheated on, address boredom head on. We know that people sometimes cheat just out of boredom. Okay. Talk about it, address it. But that requires, you know, two people in a relationship. It assumes two people in a relationship are both into each other and both equally prioritizing sex or desirous of it, which is not always the case, which is where I get into trouble with a lot of people, because there are instances where I will give people permission to cheat. There are instances where I think cheating is the least worst option for all involved. Wow. That sounds tricky.
2: It is tricky. Jeez, uh, relationships are so tricky. Once you start talking so about it, like juicy, like, when you get you into the, the you start unraveling, like and it's like oof. I More mean, vulnerability.
0: People say cheating is never okay, and then I'm like, okay, here I have a letter from a man who is married to a woman who is homebound, who has a chronic illness. They have two special needs kids that they take care of together. There's no sex in this relationship, and the guy is losing his mind, and the woman just has no interest in sex and has told him she will never have sex again, but she also doesn't want him breaking their monogamous commitment. What should he do? Cheat or abandon his wife and kids? You pick. Those are the cases I get all the time. It's easy to say cheating is always wrong. When you're faced with something like that, as I have been again and again and again, I look at that and I go, okay, cheating ain't great. It is a betrayal, but it is a smaller betrayal than abandoning your wife and kids would be. So maybe do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane, maybe be hyper discreet and consider it in that way. So as not to humiliate your wife who probably feels inadequate, who probably feels deep conflict about no longer being desiring sex or, or wanting to be intimate. maybe cheating is the the least worst option in that case. And I get in so much trouble when I say that people are always like, tell people to do the right thing and get a divorce before they have sex with anybody else. That one size fits all model for advice in relationships does not work. You have to take individuals and couples on a case by case basis.
2: Yeah. Like so much of life isn't so binary. It's not like one or two. It's, it's all down the middle. It's all in that, those decimal points. And Hey, one question that Can I have. Can I have a comment before no, you make no, your no, question? No, no, just this one this quick one, comment. Just one quick comment before your question, because this isn't a We're question. We're both very excited. I was just going to say, like, the observation which I'm getting now, having, like, you having being, a, a, like, an expert on this topic for 25, 30 years, a deep explorer on this topic, that, like, you seem to be so compassionate. Like, there's a, a deep humanity and understanding, like... You know, that how sensitive and how, you know, how, how much we need to be open when we're discussing this topic, that it is not black and white. There's so many shades of gray. That's my comment. Sorry, Stephen, your question. No. <laughs> my, my question, uh, if I can remember it now correctly, uh, was around that topic of, obviously, people who are in monogamous relationships. Many of them are really, they really believe in it. And I imagine you get a huge kickback when you use terms like monogamish When you talk about open relationships, people feel afraid. They feel vulnerable. They feel afraid to question themselves. How do you deal with the kind of kickback that you get when you say things like this? Because I imagine, I know myself, when we get criticism, as a sensitive person, I find it hard to look at. I find it hard to read. I feel hurt. I feel pain. And then I feel like, I don't want to do social media today. You know, how do you deal with it?
0: I take long breaks from social media. I don't read the comments. Um, I, you know, sometimes put tweets out there and they'll get a bunch of responses. I never look at the responses. I've learned how to do that. But 30 years ago, I started writing an advice column and advice columns were a little bit like the internet before the internet came along. Um, Ann Landers was a very famous American advice columnist. She was kind of my model and my, uh, you know, inspiration for my advice column. She always ran letters from people who disagreed with her. And so my column always included people who disagreed with me who thought I got it wrong. Sometimes I would read a letter from somebody who you know, was taking me to task for my advice and I would have to concede that they were right, that I was wrong. Advice is an opinion about what could or should be done. The only qualification you need to give advice is someone asked you for it. But <laughs> you're not, you know, you, I'm not infallible. I'm not the Pope speaking in the cathedral. I can be wrong. And so that like back and forth, that debate, I've always been, I had sort of a thick skin when social media came along but there is a degree of sort of viciousness on social media and mobbing that is of a different degree and a different kind and my attitude has always been you know you don't have to show up to get punched in the face you know if every if a mob is gathering to to burn you at the stake on social media they can't do that unless you show up and so when you know fox news or a big conservative american publication has come after me in america and like my mentions all fill with people saying horrible things to me and, or death threats. I go to the movies and I don't look at my phone for a couple of days. And then the mob has moved on. And I often say this to teenagers who are, you know, being bullied on social media. Like there's a part of that that you can control, which is showing up for it, looking at it. You know, if somebody's saying something shitty about you in a place where you're not going to see it if you don't open your phone first thing in the morning and look at it, it's not going to get to you. You know, it's school, face-to-face, the bullies coming after you online and in school. Yeah, you can't avoid that and that's horrible. But like strangers coming after you, just like turn the phone over, watch a rom-com, watch a movie, (laughs) go for a walk, give it 12 hours or 24 hours. And in most cases... It'll pass. That's but like the mono- but like specifically yes with the monogamy thing. The the thing that drives me nuts, I don't think people who are in monogamous relationships are doing it wrong or wanting something that they're not entitled to want. And I offer them my support and my best advice to how to like be monogamous, sustain a monogamous commitment, how to avoid the sexual boredom that can result in an infidelity that can blow up a monogamous relationship. So I don't think monogamous people are doing it wrong, but what I hear all the time as a non-monogamous person from monogamous people is that I'm doing it wrong, that I'm not really in love, that if we were really in love, we couldn't do this. It has happened to me more times than I can count that someone, sometimes a friend or a relative, but mostly strangers who don't know better, will say to me, you know, I've read about you and Terry, or I heard you give that talk. I couldn't do what you and Terry do because I value commitment too highly. And I look at them and say, I've been with Terry for 28 years. At what point do we get some credit for being committed to each other? We're committed to each other. We're not committed to monogamy. And half the time, the next thing out of someone's mouth when they say, I couldn't do what you do because I value commitment too highly, is all three of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, so you're committed to monogamy. And so all of your marriages have been monogamous because you have dumped people one after the other. and so you're a serial monogamous you're non-monogamous you're just non-monogamous one at a time i've stayed with terry you've had multiple sex partners i've had multiple sex partners i've only had one husband
2: that's an amazing distinction You, you know many people are committed to monogamy and you're committed to terry
0: exactly and that's a beautiful line We were monogamous at the start and then we renegotiated the terms of our relationship because we wanted to be together and make it work. And non-monogamy was how to make us work. And I think every couple really does that, whether they can admit it publicly or not. Not that every couple is non-monogamous, but every couple, you know, there's the ideals and then there's what you're actually doing to, to make your relationship work. And there's some things you may have to let go of, whether you acknowledge that publicly or not. And some things that you're going to effortlessly be able to hew to, but whatever works for you two, or you three or you four, whatever works for your couple or th- throuple or quad is what works for you. <laughs>
2: I love the inclusivity can I this is something which I've been fascinated about so this is like so we're doing a full series on sex and relationships and a constant theme which has come up what it is about like creating a sex positive environment and how we do this and how we kind of like we grew up like just like you we went to Catholic schools and Catholic Ireland and there was all that kind of sense of religion and shame around sex and you've got a you've got a son that's now I think you know, or early an adult, twi- an adult Is an adult. Yeah. And you've obviously had to educate your son in terms of sex. How have you done that and what advice, like we've got kids that are just coming into that age, kids separately, like, you know, they're just coming into to become teenagers. What advice would you give to anyone listening that wants to parent their kids in a sex-positive environment and wants to minimize the shame and do their best as they humanly can?
0: Uh, well, I think it's hard and I want, you know, I screwed it up when we gave our son the talk about where babies come from and sex and what it means. Cause there were, you know, my husband and I are two men. And there was a point at which like, I think our son was eight, nine years old. And one day he just walked into the kitchen and glared at me and gave me this look. And I was like, what? And he said, you and daddy have sex for no reason. Two men can't make babies. <laughs> And I was like, oh, right. We talked to you about sex, but we left out of that conversation. 99.99% of the sex people have, which is for pleasure, not for making babies. Even people who want babies only make one or two or three, or if they're Irish overachievers, um, like the Bradys (laughs) at the end of our block at St. Ignatius, um, 13, uh, you have a lot more sex than you do kids. So what's sex for? Is it for kids or is it for something else primarily? It's for something else, it's for pleasure, it's to cement the partner bond, it's for release, it's for that human need for intimacy and touch. That's what sex is about and for. And those are the conversations we had with our son. What sex is really for is pleasure. And that's what's usually left out of sex education. Most sex education is reproductive biology, how to make a baby, which isn't that difficult to do. Uh, Sometimes it's harder to avoid than it is to do. What's hard is talking to people about what you want, figuring out what it is that you want, and having those conversations with people really means showing them who you are. And who you are is not always who you're supposed to be, and that's hard, and that's scary. And that's what a sex education should cover. Reproductive biology, you can cover that in like eight minutes or less. You know, Spermatozoa and eggs and fallopian tubes and... Seminary vesicles and zygotes, like you can really cover that very quickly, how to use a condom and birth control. It's everything else where people get into trouble around consent, around negotiation, around figuring out who you are, around taking things slow. Like often what young people, particularly young people are exposed to a lot of pornography need to be told what they need to hear most is what you've seen in porn is not what's expected of you in a long-term relationship as an adult, certainly not what's expected of you at 15 with your first boyfriend or girlfriend, that you can take it slow. There are degrees of intimacy and ways to express yourself sexually that are low stakes, low risk, comforting, comfortable, and also are enjoyed by adults frequently. Like kids have this idea that adult sex lives are all just fucking, 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 or sucking, sucking, sucking. And adult sex lives are often not that or not always that, and it's still an adult sex life. And so, yeah, there's just, if I could remake sex education classes, it would just be to refocus them on pleasure and consent and, you know, a day on reproductive biology, but then everything else that's so scary and so difficult and to normalize it, not so that it's not scary or difficult anymore, it'll always be scary and difficult, making yourself vulnerable like that but just to acknowledge that we're all in this scary and difficult thing together and that we all experience sex in this way that makes us feel sometimes ridiculous or small or humiliated or inadequate. And yet there's so much to sex that's liberating and invigorating and transcendent that it's worth it. Pleasure and
2: consent. I found that very poetic. Pleasure. Dance. I never, like, you know, I could. I, I, I had the birds. I Like, I already chatted with our kids and, you know, explained what sex is. But I did the reproductive talk. I didn't do the pleasure bit. So hearing you say that, it's like, but now we've got loads of time. Ours are, yeah, you eight, know, and 11. <laughs> so, yeah. and also the porn
0: talk. You can't avoid the porn talk now.
2: Yeah, yeah. And we is do. that Which something is, that you recommend to parents to go head on and talk about porn and really address it?
0: Head on and talk about it. And, you know, you have to say to them. Porn is to sex as action movies are to a a Thursday morning. Like Thursday mornings don't look like action movies. And a lot of sex doesn't look like porn. Porn is kabuki theater sex. Porn is so much left out. And to it sounds weird to go to a kid who may be watching porn, you know, if you have evidence of watching porn, and talk to them about how to watch it critically, to talk to them about, okay these were two porn actors at a certain moment they began to film what happened before they began to film do you think to ask a kid that who's who you caught watching porn or you know is watching porn, not caught you know is watching porn and it just takes a second for that kid to go oh they probably talked about it yeah they talked about it everything that you saw in that porn clip they talked about in advance nothing was a surprise they had a conversation And that they leave out of the porn. They don't show you that in the porn. You can't leave that out of your sex life. You will have to have that conversation, those conversations, to negotiate what it is that you want, what it is you're going to do, get consent, get permission. If you can't, if you don't want to give your consent or give permission, get out of there. Use your words. No. Yes. Maybe. Maybe later, maybe sometime, maybe not now. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I will be at some point to use your words. And you can frame that conversation around using your words with porn. Like if your kid watched some porn and you know about it and you want to have that conversation, honest to God, just say to them, ask your kid, what happened before they started filming? What do you think happened?
2: It really reframes it. And your
0: kid, kids are smart. Kids will go, oh, right. They had... They talked about it. Yep. They talked about it. It was literally in a lot of porn, you know, for porn professionals, it was a part of a contract negotiation. It wasn't just discussed. It was enumerated. It was written down in a contract.
2: Signed and stamped and all that. yeah wow. so, so consent, pleasure, and porn. Those are three things for anyone with kids that wants to, you know, take responsibility for sex education at home.
0: Yes. And to recognize that one percent of your ki- our kids are asexual, that a certain larger percentage of them may be trans or gender nonconforming in a way that's important to them and who they are, and they need to feel accepted. And a certain larger percentage, three to five to seven eight percent, are gay, lesbian, or bi. And you want to err on the side of including those things in your conversations with your kid about sex in case your kid is trans or gender nonconforming, or bi or lesbian or gay because you need to let your kid know that you will love and accept them you don't want your kid to think you know that they can't come out to you if they need your love and support you know i was gay in a closeted teenager at a time when parents didn't have easy access to information about what it was to be gay and it was very very it, it created real problems in my relationship with my parents that they would say when it, to me, when I was 13, 14 years old, I love you, but I'd heard what they said about gay people. And so when they said, I love you, I thought, no, you don't, you're lying to me. If you knew you wouldn't love me. And it really screwed our, my relationship up with both my parents for a long time. And you don't want to do that to your kid. That's right. beautiful.
2: So inclusive. Like you've so made light. it
0: so simple. Like you've
2: given the 101 for dummy, you know, like me kind of going, <laughs> okay, I've got two Ps and a C. Okay. Pleasure, porn, and consent. Those are the three things I need and to talk inclusion. about. Oh, and inclusion. inclusion. Okay. PPCI. I've nearly got a an anagram.
0: And it's really not that hard. Like you don't have to do like full on gay sex ed just in case your kid might be gay. All you got to do is say to your kid, you know, some kids are gay. If you're gay when you grow up, that's fine. I, I will love and accept you have gay friends or gay relatives, which isn't that hard to have these days mm. because more people who are gay are out and make sure that your kids know that your gay friends and relatives are loved and accepted in your family or your social circles and then if your kids gay they'll feel safe coming out to you when they're ready. And they're and will be less likely to kill themselves or abuse drugs and alcohol as some queer kids do because they're they've internalized mm. hatred that they've seen modeled for them often in their families or their churches or their communities. You don't want your kid, if your kid is gay. And if you went to parents and said, there's a 10% chance, you know, that if you feed your kid, this applesauce, they'll die. You wouldn't feed your kid that applesauce. Right. But parents will stuff their kids full of homophobia or transphobia, even though there's a one in 10 chance that they're going to kill their own kid doing that. Wow. Poof that's
2: serious we got a question in um from someone called d savage and they asked <laughs> us about a trip in the 1980s when they were in ireland at christmas eve i wonder if at you could new year's eve just anyway. on new year's eve i wonder if you could just speak briefly on that on uh, it was, d savage
0: it was christmas eve and in answer to d savage's question i don't know how it happened that i was in ireland on christmas eve uh there were friends of my mom's, uh, Mary Maher, an Irish journalist who recently passed away. It was a dear friend of my mother's from Chicago who moved to Ireland. Um, prominent Irish journalist in Dublin. And I was going to stay with her, but I couldn't stay until Christmas Day. For some reason, I think they were away. And so I had a Christmas Eve in Dublin all by myself in like 1987. And I didn't know what to do to kill the time. And it was very depressing. I'd never really been alone for Christmas or not at the family for Christmas, And so I ended up in a movie theater in Dublin that was showing A Nightmare on Elm Street. My God! So I spent Christmas Eve in Dublin in 1987 watching a slasher movie in a theater where you could smoke at the time. They still let people smoke in movie theaters in Ireland with like 10 other people watching a slasher movie on Christmas Eve. It was my most depressing Christmas. And I talk about it sometimes on my show Because, you know, I'll hear from people who are sad because they're having a depressing holiday. They're not having the holiday that TV and films and family make them think they're supposed to have. And my advice is just to lean into it. Have the worst holiday. Whatever, you know, go see Nightmare on Elm Street in a theater full of people who are smoking cigarettes. Because you will tell that story at subsequent Christmases, when you're feeling better and in a better place, and you're having a better Christmas, you'll be able to tell the story about your worst Christmas ever for laughs. Like sometimes those shitty moments in your life become stories you dine out on for the rest of your life.
2: <laughs> it's a nice way of taking a positive out of a negative, you know, that way it gives that it kind of, it's the highs and the lows of life. And when you know the lows, it kind of helps punctuate the high notes.
0: Yeah, like I got a call a couple of years ago from someone who said, I'm alone at Christmas." And I'm so sad. And I called them back and it was like, okay, how can we make it worse? Like ridiculous. How can we make your Christmas alone so bad? It's funny. Like, what should you plan for dinner? Like, what would be the worst thing you could possibly eat for Christmas dinner? Let's have that. And the worst TV shows you could possibly watch. Most inappropriate TV shows you could possibly watch. The least appropriate outfit you could wear. Like, we just went through like how to make it, because it's already going to be bad, how to make it funny bad. How to add a layer of ridiculous and to to bring humor in. Yeah. And just like to look at it and say, okay, this is going to be bad. How can I, you know, make it so bad that I can't even myself, as I go through like a shitty Christmas, help but laugh.
2: Wow. Your humanity is wonderful, Dan.
0: Oh, thank you. I really,
2: I really mean it. Your like your sincerity and humanness is absolutely beautiful to see.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, too. yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk about your books. I know you have a new book out that came out in September. Uh, I saw some of the illustrations of it. It looks beautiful. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about that. Um, it's called Savage
0: Love, Savage Love from A to Z. It's just a collection of essays about things like monogamous, uh, the price of admission, being GGG, which is something else I recommend to couples who want their sex lives to work, which is being good, giving and game, good in bed, got to practice. Giving, sometimes you give your partner pleasure without an expectation of an immediate return. Um, Like reciprocity sometimes takes a while to roll through. Uh, And game for anything within reason. Like you want, you know, to be the person your partner comes to with the things they want to experience. And you want to be receptive to those things within reason. doesn't mean you have to be up for anything. Um, Sometimes the price of admission applies to your sex life too. You know, you don't have a right to expect everything from your partner sexually. And so the book is like illustrations by my longtime illustrator, Joe Newton, that are really funny and humorous. And these essays by me about the sort of big ideas and themes rolling through Savage Love uh, over the years. I was wondering if we're going to talk about veganism or veganism. I never know how to pronounce that word because I have a confession to make, which is I'm like, I know I should be vegan and I'm not. I try like I have whole days, whole days, you know, sometimes three, four days in a row where I don't eat meat. And then I succumb. How do I give it up? Give me some advice. Oh, great.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful. What an honor. Firstly, I would have the same empathy that you have, or I I would strive to have it. that sense of, that's okay. You know, there's no perfect. I think, you know, vegan is an ideal and it's something that we all strive to. But I think the main message for in terms of health, for your own health, is to eat more whole foods. Like if you look at research from the blue zones, where they're the five areas on the planet where are you familiar with the blue zones? No. Okay, five areas on the planet where there's the most amount of centenarians. So that's people who've lived over the age of 100. And they found out there were nine factors that dictated why they lived such long, healthy lives. And they found one of them obviously was diet. And it wasn't necessarily vegan or vegetarian. It was 95% of their diet was whole food. So it was fruit, veg, beans, legumes, nuts and seeds and whole grains. So it doesn't have to be an either or thing. But I think the more, think of it like a spectrum. The more you can do it, the more beneficial it is. Because you could eat a vegan diet and just eat chocolate bars and vegan Magnum. And I've candy seen people bars. do that. Yeah. And they ain't going to be any healthier. You know, they're probably, they're possibly going to make healthier choices for the planet. So maybe it's dropping the labels for a little bit and really focusing on the whole plant foods because you'll get the benefits for yourself and then for the planet as well. Because obviously, You know, research now says the single biggest thing we can do for the planet is to embrace a plant-based vegan diet as best we can. Yeah,
0: I feel so conflicted and guilty about it because I'm Irish Catholic and I don't feel any guilt about sex. So I guess my guilt had to go somewhere. (laughs) And I know that it's better for the planet to not eat meat. And I also know just that animals can suffer and industrial farming is basically an enormous torture operation. And if, you know, the aliens ever come to harvest us, we're not going to have a leg to stand on. We won't be able to complain about it considering what we've done to cows and chickens and everything um, the way industrial farming works now. And we're trying, you know, I eat so much less and we're trying to adopt really more of the Asian model when we do eat meat, that it's like not what the dinner is, but it's like something that's added to mostly vegetables, you know, that Asian stir fry thing where like the chicken is not 80% of it. It's like, 20% of it or 10% of it. And it's, and so we're trying to like minimize and cut back, but man, if you've eaten meat for 50 years, it's really hard. to to, you go for like four, three, four days without meat. And then you're just like, I have to have a hamburger. I have to have a hamburger. And I is it a psychological dependence? Is it a chemical dependence? Is it physiological? and it's also it's also an environmental
2: dependence because we are the product of an obesogenic environment, so just like nowadays we are the product of a of a monogamous environment. We're the same in terms of food. You go around and it's like you go into any supermarket and it's way easier to eat junk food, processed foods, cheap meats than it is to eat healthy whole plant foods, so you're up against it, so it takes really conscious awareness and reading about and educating yourself and kind of going, okay, I'm going to make a decision from that point. You know, I think
0: that's, go ahead.
2: I'd also say you're in wonderful shape and you're someone that seems to train a lot. Even when I was watching one of your videos, I was like, wow, he's in amazing shape. I really must start training more. So I think the more you can eat more whole foods, the easier it is to stay in shape. To stay lean. To stay lean because they're high in fiber, they're low in calories and they're high in nutrients. So they're optimum for this type of, and they're predominantly complex carbohydrates.
0: And you're right about like the part of its infrastructure. Like if all that is out there is like garbage or cheap meat, that's what you're going to eat. I am lucky enough to live in a place where there's a lot of like restaurants that don't serve meat. And there's a lot of like buffets that are vegetarian. Um, one of my favorite cafes to go right in is a vegan place that serves like three or four different kinds of stew and one or two different like uh casseroles every day. And just to have an infrastructure where my options aren't all restaurants that are serving meat with maybe a couple of vegetarian or vegan options, but places where there's like no meat on the menu and it's not missed and I don't miss it when I'm there has been really transforming for me. That's why I've gotten up to like sometimes three, four days in a row where I'm just not eating meat because I can patronize places where I don't feel deprived, And the food is really, really good. And the like dishes without meat are not like the second string dishes that the chef makes grumpily. They're like what the place is about. And that has been so important. Um, And
2: and and also, I just
0: wish there was more of them.
2: And also a key piece is your the people you spend time with, because if Terry moves more in the direction to plant based, it's going to be easier if your other friends just like, you know, the way you probably live with you know, type of people that are very aware and open to sexuality and all these type of things. And you're a product of that environment. Whereas if you live in a very religious kind of like sex negative environment, you're going to be a product of that. And the same way with if you want to change the food you eat, if you get like statistically, it says if you find one or two friends that eat healthier,
0: you're going to become that way too. Well, and I need to spend less time with Terry because he started bodybuilding seriously and it's all chicken breasts all the time. Chicken breasts and broccoli. <laughs> yeah, but I don't eat, uh, I eat like not nearly as much as he does. I have my veggie stuff when he's having chicken.
2: <laughs> well done, Dan. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for taking the time. Genuinely, we've loved like research and chatting to you. You're like a
0: dream. Well, thank you. Thank you both so much. I just really want to meet people where they are and People are imperfect and that means relationships are never perfect. And yet people get it in their heads that if a relationship isn't perfect, they should end it. And I don't like to see people end relationships that, that, that should survive if we had more realistic expectations of them and more compassion for each other and ourselves.
2: Beautiful. It's almost like spirituality. Like, you know, you've gone so full circle that it's like, you're you're what you're saying is spiritually you know it's sex but it's also so human
0: well thank you so much
2: yeah, yeah. thanks Dan, to you. if you're ever back in ireland christmas eve you're always welcome in our house <laughs> we have a wonderful family we would we, we can watch nightmare on elm street together <laughs> yeah, no, can... no no
0: no no more slasher films at christmas <laughs> that was the only one i ever needed i got to see johnny depp murdered on christmas eve in 1987 that was enough <laughs> but
2: if I'm ever in Ireland on Christmas
0: Eve, I will take you up on that offer. Thanks, good.
2: Dan Savage. We'll be in touch, but thanks You're so much. Wonderful. Thanks and again. if we can ever help, just let us know. You know, we're we'll good do. at the food game. And if you ever want to share some vegan food together, come over and hang out. We're always here. I will
0: do. I will do. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks, Dan. You're a star. Thanks a million. Thanks a million. Thank
2: you. Mind bye yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for making it this far in the podcast. We were just debating there, does anyone actually listen to the outro? And then Dave said, well, probably if you're in the car and they can't turn it off. (laughs) So maybe we'll do an Instagram story now and get the actual stats and see if it's worthwhile doing an outro. Dan Savage, what a gentleman, what an empathetic, emotionally aware, highly articulate human. I think what what I got most about it is, I guess from nearly 30 years of giving advice about sex and relationships, he was so like open to the vulnerability of humans, the mistakes that were infallible. We are just fumbling along, no, we're doing fallible. our best, we're whatever that word is, you know what I mean? But the, the humanness was so beautiful that it gave so much hope that it's like to stop looking for perfection and to really accept and be kind. Yeah. That was the kind of yeah. thing that I and, and then I guess the PPCI I got for the kids, like that was really good when you're talking to your kids, like, very cool uh, But thank you for listening Massive shout out To the wonderful Sarah Fossett Who you heard at the start And to Shawnee Cal Who produce and edit And upload this podcast If you do want to support us um, Subscribe on Apple Podcasts oh, and, and a, and, leave five, a and give a five star review Yeah please. that'd be great Yeah I think because that's meant To be really good for the Algorithm or whatever you call that thing um but uh yeah thanks Emil this is part of our sex and relationship series so if you enjoyed this one check out the other ones and if you share it on Instagram we'll share too and we're going to shut up now so bye 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 bye. see you bye 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 bye